Tom Payne has taken part in the X-Alps 2009. In this podcast, I chat to him informally about his preparation and his strategies for the race. The second part of this podcast will be recorded after the X-Alps, where he discusses his experiences in retrospect. He's never participated before, so it's his first time, and he brings a fresh perspective to the race and how to prepare for it. So what on earth possessed you to actually want to do the X-Alps? Oh, it looks amazing. I first saw it in 2003, the first one. I was, I was in Chamonix on a mountaineering and paragliding trip, and um, it just looked like an amazing thing to do. The idea that you could take a paraglider, take something you can carry on your back and use it to travel the full length of the Alps. It's just absolutely brilliant to make it into a race. You had the physical side of it as well as the, uh, the challenge of the paragliding. It just looked like an absolutely amazing thing to do. I thought at the time I'd love to do this someday. And, uh, well, now I'm, now I'm in. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's obviously, you know, two types of, well, in, in terms of this, there's two types of people. There's the people who could even possibly consider entering it and the people who've got absolutely no chance. Did you, fitness-wise, always know, you know, have you always been fit enough to consider it or is it something that you've had to work towards over the last few years with a view of entering? I've always been uh, reasonably active. I've been running throughout my life, really. I did a lot of hill running when I was in Wales. And been running regularly out here in the Alps as well, uh, ski touring in the winter. Uh, so I've always been an active person, and I think I'm quite lucky that my my base level of fitness is pretty good. My first marathon I did in three hours ten minutes, which is wow. a time. Uh, I'm happy cruising around doing uh, forty minute ten k's in in training. Uh, so I think I'm quite lucky in that respect. And so the, the physical side of it, although I know it will be extremely tough and much tougher than I expect it to be in the matter, even if I expect it to be tougher, I know it'll be tougher. But the physical side doesn't worry me as, as much in that sense. I feel I'm starting from a good point. Have you had to put in a, a lot of training on the physical side? Or, I mean, if you just kind of maintained your normal training program, but a little bit added? I did a lot over the winter and the first part of the spring. I found I've had very little time to train physically recently. It's been extremely busy at work. And uh, so it's been quite tough. Um, I'm getting back into it again now, but I'm focusing more on walking with a glider, uh, walking up mountains with my full gear, in fact, on times, and 20 kilos on the back rather than the 10 I'll have on the race. So I am training, but it's not an extreme level. It's more maintaining, maintaining my current fitness. Now, when I was reading around other pilots' experiences of the X-Alps, some of them were saying that in their preparation, they didn't actually manage to walk with a kit that they were going to be carrying. And they found that that was actually sometimes the problem, that when they were actually then walking with the actual kit, there was discomfort that they felt because they hadn't had a chance to do that. Have you been able to actually practice with your kit or are you just kind of using dummy kit at the moment? I'm kind of using dummy kit, but it's close to what I'll use in the race. Uh, so I've been trying out different shoes. I'm generally pretty lucky that I don't tend not to get blisters. So uh, I'm lucky there. On the rucksack, as I still haven't found my harness yet, and it's a possibility that I'll have a reversible harness, which will also be the rucksack. I have, I don't know yet what my rucksack I'll be using in the races. Uh, that said, I've been using a, a Supair Mountain Light sack, which is a classic 65-litre sack, which I've had for several years, and that's extremely comfortable and there's a good chance I'll be using something very close to that in the race. But you're totally right. If you wear new shoes in the race, you can get blisters. If, you're, if you don't check out your rucksack and the way it's packed, it's easy to get strain, strain in your shoulders, things can rub in all the wrong places. 
even simple things like getting the right pair of trousers is absolutely key. Yeah, somebody mentioned socks. Yeah, socks. <laughs> no, they said the right supporter and the right socks. Those seem to be the two things, and I thought, well, <laughs> what a thing to say about the ex-alps. You know, those are the two yeah. key things: socks, supporter. <laughs> so. Yeah, but it's totally, totally true. Mm. If you if you get blisters early in the race, you're going to have to walk on them for two weeks. It's extremely mm. painful, mm. and no matter how mentally tough you are, if you're walking in pain, you'll be slower and less comfortable and it, it can ruin your race and i've I'm, I'm very carefully uh, chosen my socks there's a, a brand in switzerland called x socks which i've been using for all my running and they're absolutely excellent uh, they, they wick away moisture well i don't get any blisters at all and it's absolutely key and i think tom cochonier has really shown people how to be on your feet day after day in this sort of race i think from speaking to other athletes i found out that Initially, they start off with one pair of socks and one pair of shoes per day, uh, whereas, of course, Tom Cochonier has been changing his socks and shoes once every few hours during the race, and I think we'll see a lot more people doing that. I'll certainly be doing that. It makes a huge difference. So how much time have you actually had to spend on research with this kind of thing, you know, your equipment, never mind kind of the actual race, but just kind of getting yourself physically equipped with the things that you'll need? Oh, it's a lot. I mean, it's ongoing, should we say. For example, finding the right support vehicle. Uh, they're very hard to find camper vans. That took a long time. On the harness, I'm still not there. Choosing, testing out different gear for um, for shirts and T-shirts, for trousers and so on. Checking out the route, buying maps. There's huge amounts to do. The one thing that has been easy in a sense is that thanks to the support of Access UK, I've, no, I've got an excellent wing for the race and the, the Venus too. Yeah, they built that specially for you, didn't they? Yes, that's right. It's a, a Venus 2 RX in lightweight materials. Uh, the, the RX version is a non-certified version of the Venus 2. It's the same sail, but with a different line set. And this makes it go a bit faster. It's a bit sharper, a bit sharper in the handling and a bit more, or quite a lot more performance than the standard Venus 2. And this is, yes, in lightweight materials, uh, skinny lines and lightweight risers too. And you've actually had a chance to, to actually fly it a bit as well, haven't you, in, in Switzerland? And you've had yes, a chance to actually test it. Yes, yes. So I've taken out to a competition in Switzerland. I've also flown at XC in the Alps. It's great, actually. When, when I'm flying it with my normal kit, I'm eight kilos over the top of the weight range. So it's very fast and very, and very sharp. A lot of fun to fly. When I'm flying to the race, I'll be just below the top of the weight range, which is exactly where you really want to be. How did you and Alex find each other in terms of, you know, deciding that you were going to be working together? Did you know each other long or how did that come about? We met at a Ozone Shabra Open competition several years ago and uh, we've been in contact with each other ever, ever since. Alex spends his winters working so he can spend his summers flying. So we've met, we've caught up several times when Alex has come over to Europe to fly in the summer. It's very hard to find a good supporter. Supporters on their own are rare, and very good supporters like Alex are extremely rare. You need someone who's extremely competent, who you can totally trust, who is also available in the uh, at, at the right time. So I was very lucky that when I suggested it to Alex, that he agreed to do it. Yeah, I mean, having sort of read around and, and heard Ulrich and Ruth's talk about their experience last time, it seems that you need to have a very strong personality to be the supporter, you know, to 
be able to motivate when that's necessary and chastise when that's necessary and just basically be the shoulder to cry on as well as the you know be both the carrot and the stick as it were everybody that i've ever heard or read about who's talked about the exalts has always stressed how important the relationship between the supporter and the athlete is so you guys have been working together in in the lead up to this as well i mean what kind of preparations alex been doing so Alex has been checking out the routes, talking to a lot of pilots. He, uh, we've been discussing gear together. Uh, of course, Alex is in Canada at the moment. He's coming over to the Alps in, in one week's time. So it's all been via email. And we've discussed a lot of strategy as well. In terms of the strategy, how much have you drawn on other athletes' experiences in the past races to actually suss out what your strategy is going to be? Oh, a huge amount. I mean, for me, it's my first ex-Alps, so I'm going in as a total total newbie, total novice, and I don't want to make all the mistakes myself on the first time, so I'm learning as much, trying to learn as much as I can from everyone else's experiences. This means I've been devouring every article or blog I can find about the ex-Alps. I've been through the Red Bull DVD with my finger on the pause button and taking notes about the just simple things you see how um, how people treat their feet how they they prepare themselves for walking at night what food seems to work how they any problems they come across and how they solve them so consequently I'm, I'm doing a huge amount of research onto how other people have competed in the X house so I can be as best prepared as possible Everybody always talks about how much camaraderie there is amongst the competitors. Have you found that in advance as well, that people are quite happy to kind of talk and advise you and help out with your preparation? Or do people still guard their secrets? Absolutely. Of the pilots I've been in contact with, they've been extremely helpful. I think everyone realises that the race itself is as much a challenge as, as racing each other. Uh, so we've been sharing a lot of information. I've been in close contact with the other Axis pilots, Hans Arrangemeck and Lloyd uh, Pennyquick. Lots of work with uh, Aidan Toaz from the UK. I've caught up with Martin Muller, um, exchanged emails with Pal Takats, and we're all sharing a lot of information together. That's really good. Would you describe yourself in this context as a runner or a flyer? I'm somewhere between the two, mm-hmm. I think. I'm certainly not a Tomoko Kinnear-type runner. He is, without doubt, on another planet compared to the rest of us. He'll, he'll be looking at running 100 kilometres a day, probably I'll be probably closer to 50 or 60, which is okay, but still some distance from him. On the pilot side of things, you've got total world-class guys there. Alex Hoffler, Martin Muller, Kriegel Maurer, Heli Eichholzer, who beat Kriegel Maurer in the world. These are really top pilots, I put myself very much between the two. <laughs> Obviously, you're going to make your strategic decisions are going to be influenced very much on where you see yourself on that spectrum. But if you're right in the middle, how has that affected your kind of strategy thinking? Well, it gives me the confidence that I, I know if the weather's grim, I can walk hard on the ground. And if the weather's good, I know I'm a good enough pilot to have a good chance of making good flights as well. Because I'm in the middle, I feel I'll probably be able to choose more than perhaps others, um, which hopefully will be an advantage. But if the weather is extremely good or extremely bad, then one of the more extreme people will be in the best position. Are you hopeful that this year the weather's going to be better than last time? It was shockingly bad, wasn't it? It's so hard to say. I mean, to be honest, it's shockingly bad most years. It's the end of July, it's early August in the, in the Alps. There's a lot of energy in the system. There's a lot of, uh, it tends to be very stormy. It can still be stable in the valleys. I think it's not a race that you go in expecting to fly every inch of it. It's a race that you go in hoping to fly maybe half of it. 
so I'm ready for either, basically. How much confidence are you getting because of the fact that it's actually pretty much on your home turf? I know not all of it, clearly, but a lot of it, you know, you're very familiar with the Alps. So how much confidence is that giving you? It really helps. The last part of the race from Mont Blanc down to Monaco is really my home ground. I've done big XC flights along most of the route there. Uh, it'll be great because it gives me a clear destination. I'm flying home effectively to Mont Blanc and I'm on terrain I know. And then also that point is when I'll be the most tired and it'll be very reassuring to be flying places that I know, turning course, corners and seeing towns and mountains that, are, that I'm familiar with. So I think it'll be a real, real advantage at the end of the race when I need it most. They've built different things into the race this time, haven't they, with mm. kind of having to go and exit cylinders in certain directions and things. Yeah. And I read on your blog that you were saying that the Swiss guys are probably trying to get into Switzerland as quickly as they possibly yeah. can so that they're on their home turf. Do you think that the race this time is going to be significantly harder or more complicated than in previous years because of the, the complexity that they've built into it? Certainly it's a very tactically interesting course, particularly from Marmelada to Matterhorn to Mont Blanc, that leg. Uh, it's very interesting. The first part from Salzburg through to Germany, the Grossglockner in Austria, and then to the Marmelada, the sheer number of turn points constrains your choices somewhat, or they still have choices in northern Italy. But from the Marmelada to the Matterhorn, you have three or four major different routes you can take, maybe crossing to Switzerland earlier and getting into the, into the Rhine Valley, or at the other extreme, staying in northern Italy right to the last minute and diving over a col at the end. So... It's really tactically very interesting. There's a good chance that the people who get it right on the day will get a big advantage from, whereas those who made, made the wrong, will turn out to be the wrong decision will suffer for it. How are you planning to make those kind of decisions? I mean, Alex will obviously have a huge part in to play in the navigation aspect of your race, but you know, are you going to just play it day by day, or have you already got some? I mean, obviously, don't tell me your secrets, but <laughs> have you already got a kind of plan in your head that is kind of plan A? And if you have to, you know, diverge from that plan, then you've got a few other ones up your sleeves, or how have you actually planned this? The, the way I've done it is I'm actually trying to consider all sensible options in reasonable detail, and the idea being that then. During the race itself, I'll be able to make, or Alex and I will be able to make an informed choice as to what the best thing to do is. I'm hesitant about identifying any single route as being the best one because it might turn out the weather's bad in that part of the Alps and you're better off going somewhere else where the weather's better. You simply can't know until the race is there. So, for example, cross from Italy into Switzerland. As I said, there are about three or four different uh, calls you can take. I've been checking those out. Uh, looking what the flying options are from them, looking what the terrain is like in the area, comparing distances on Google Maps uh, with an idea that come the day and come the weather forecast, we'll be able to choose the right one. Red Bull, are, Red Bull Mobile are sponsoring us with a mobile data uh, contract, which means we'll have mobile internet. I've signed up to various uh, weather sites on the nets that provide specialist flying forecasts. We also have skilled pilots in different parts of the Alps who are ready to, on the phone, to advise us and contact us. So we hope to get have good quality forecasts and good local advice for the full length of the route. Yeah, I mean, local support from people is really important. I know that everybody always mm. says that one of the most, the best motivators that they've had is people coming along and walking with them and keeping them kind of company and, and motivated and things. And yeah. having lots of friends locally, that will hold you in good stead as well, I assume. Yeah, but the people are coming out to the outs and there'll be a lot of people. I'll make a lot of new friends on the race. There'll be a lot of people that I don't know yet, but I'm sure will come out and show me the short route through the town or 
give me a bit of grub as I'm uh, stumbling on my way. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it, actually. Talk me through how you've done some of the mental preparation, because a lot of people say that that's actually really the most difficult thing when you actually start the race, that you can be physically prepared and probably be at your fittest that you've ever been. But how are you preparing mentally? Uh, I think I've taken a fairly unorthodox approach to this. The season's been rather mixed for me so far. I think I'm making all the mistakes and I think all the setbacks possible before actually starting the race itself. I've crashed my glider into trees, I'm throwing my reserve in that, I've taken off with uh, big knots in my lines, had to land on glaciers and slog out through snow, I've had uh, had gear problems, it's been a huge amount, and just simply getting this experience of dealing with problems, getting your head down and just getting on with it. So that's your strategy, it's like, I've had all this bad luck, how could it get any worse? (laughs) I'm sure it will be worse, but it's... uh, That's not much of a strategy, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, mentally also preparing, um, this is something I need to talk with Alex when when he arrives next week, but um, planning for various things that can go wrong in the race and invariably will go wrong and coming up with strategies to cope with that. I've come up with quite a long list of things that can go wrong, actually, and everything from a silly injury and a bad blister or sprained ankle early in the race to having amazing weather conditions, one of the pilots flying the entire course in five days where everyone else is still in northern Italy, maybe uh, the financial crisis or cause Red Bull to pull the plug just before it starts. Who knows? But the more I can prepare beforehand, the more I can have a plan ahead of time, the better things will be in the race itself. And presumably, actually, how you are psychologically in the race has a lot to do with how you were, are with your supporter as well. Yeah. So, um, assume, I mean, I, I don't know how well you know each other, but presumably you, you know that you're going to get on well enough to stick together and, and act as a team come what may. Yes, I think so. Alex, we're, we're with Alex, as I met him a few years ago, uh, we've spent some, uh, some time together in the Alps, uh, flying together. I I'm totally convinced it will work. I know we're both very focused on having a great race. We're both uh, rational people, and I think we'll both stay rational even under the stresses of the race. In terms of when you actually decided to enter the race, what mm. would you say, you know, when you kind of looked at yourself as a person and, and where you are in terms of your fitness and everything, what would you say were your strengths and your weaknesses? Strength-wise, compared to other pilots, I'm probably... Fitter than the average pilot, particularly from from doing the uh, all the running. Weakness-wise, I'm not a PWC champion. I'm not a world champion. I haven't. I've done okay in the British uh, competitions and in the and in the French uh, cross country league, but I'm better than some of the pilots there. But I'm certainly. But I'm a long way from the uh, the top of the pilots. I'll probably put myself in the top 10 out of the 30 on physical fitness, but midfield at best on, on the piloting skills. But you are flying in conditions that you're familiar with. Yes, yes, you're right. That's um, a good point. I have some sympathy for the pilots who, who live elsewhere in the world and will come to the Alps for the first or second time ever to compete in this race. Certainly having it on home ground and being used to Alps and Alpine conditions and weather and so on is a really big advantage. What are your fears and worries about the race? It's a unique opportunity to be to be able to compete in the X Alps, and I want to do that opportunity. I want to do myself and Alex justice in the, in the result. 
So a fear, if you like, would be making a mistake or being so badly relative to the other competitors that I end up getting eliminated. You know, I'd, it's important for me that I can hold my head high at, at the end of the race and said, yes, I was, Red Bull were right to place their confidence in me and Alex and, and choose us for that race. Mm. But it's also something so new, so unknown, that I simply don't, I don't know how it'll work out in the end. So I have a, my fear would be, uh, one of my greatest fears is that I, I do badly. In terms of badly, I mean, if you're eliminated, then that's one thing. But for example, I was reading about Carrie Castle, and as far as she was concerned, she won when she finished the race. You know, she didn't give up, and that was the biggest hurdle for her. So as long as she carried on until the race finished, as far as she was concerned, she won. And I think yeah. that's actually a really good way of looking at it. That is, you know, even if other people win, if, as long as you've done your best. So I'm not trying to say, yeah. you know, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter what, where you come, because I'm sure you've got bigger ambitions than that. But in such a tough race, to to keep going as far as you can is a huge achievement. Yes, I, I agree. I agree, and that's entirely that's entirely sort of personal, internally generated thing, if you like. But my my objectives include a factor which is not under my control, namely how I do relative to other athletes. I don't affect them positively or negatively, as I don't have control over it. It is being unknown, and yeah, it's just simple. I know I want to do well in the race. My expectations of where I end up have varied a lot over the course of preparations. You know, there are some days that I wake up, I, I dream of um, my acro session over the raft in Monaco as I as I come in uh, just inside the top three. Um, other times when the preparation is going less well, I have a setback. I worry about being eliminated at the back. I'm slogging through the rain while other people are countries ahead of me. So that it really, really varies where I I um, I think I'll come. It, it's more a function of my mood than it is of the uh, uh, than anything solid. I'm kind of hoping that if there are days when it's absolutely pouring down and you've already slogged 30 kilometres that day and you know that you've got another 20 to go, that you will actually be wandering along, watching that movie in your head of doing the acro and then getting a really nice cold beer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, because that's a really good motivational picture to have yeah. in your mind when it's really hard work. Yeah. I think mentally I'm quite good at spinning things to to put them in a better light from my point of view. It's, it's total rationalisation of my own behaviour. But, for example, when it's raining, I think, ah, oh, great, this is going to ground uh, Maurer and uh, Muller and, and all this sort of stuff. So I, this is a great opportunity to uh, to catch up on these guys. Here we go, basically, chance to uh, claw my way forward again. I think whatever the situation is, I can find a positive spin on it, and that will be that will help me a lot during the rains. What are the things that you're really looking forward to? All of it, <laughs> simply. Um, it's been described as organised torture, so you're looking forward yeah. to that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but at so many different stages. Just standing on the start line in Salzburg is going to be absolutely incredible. I'm going to be there with my pack and my lightweight poles, and I'm going to be standing next to all these greats on the uh, on the start line in the middle of the town centre. It's going to be a very emotional moment for me, I know. And then the, the whole experience of doing it, the sort of uh, slogging up hills and the flying in amazing places, and amazing conditions, the mental challenge. It's just oh, I can't wait. <laughs> and 
and then of course the raft in Monaco and the cold beer waiting for me at the end. Sorry, cold Red Bull waiting for me at the end. And it's just afterwards to be able to look back and think, I did that. It'll. Uh, I, I can't wait. It is and, an experience of a lifetime, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so I did this mountain uh, ultramarathon around um, or in, in the Mont Blanc Massif last summer. And it was 20 hours, 100 kilometers. I mean, it sounds like a lot, but it's a small fraction of the X Alps. And I remember the first half of it was just absolutely amazing. Uh, I got about seven hours. I'd covered 40 odd kilometers through the um, through mountainous terrain. Sun was slowly setting on the Mont Blanc Massif. I was just flying through the terrain. Now on a downhill, it was just absolutely magic. And I realized, hang on, 40 kilometers here, I'm not even halfway yet. And the next few hours were much, I was much more sober, kind of re- suddenly realizing the depth, the, the scale of the, uh, the challenge that I'd set myself. And then by hours 12 onwards, when it's the pitch black at night, and I didn't know where the course was going, it was well marked, but I didn't know how many more mountains I had to walk up and down, how many rough paths I had to scramble up, and how many knee jarring descents I'd have. That was really, that was really hard. Um, I remember one particular memory I have, it was pitch black, no moon that night. And everyone was fairly spread out at this point, probably about 100 metres between each uh, each competitor around me. And everyone had their head touch. And I looked in front of me and down the, down the mountain in front of me and just saw these little pools of light at the competitor's head. And I thought, wow, every single one of them is in their own little world of pain. And I'm in my own world of pain. And everything hurt. It was really, really tough. But I got round. I got round reasonable time in the end. And despite not being able to walk for two weeks after this, it was just an absolutely brilliant experience. And I know that whatever happens during the race, no matter how low, how difficult, how painful it becomes, I know that afterwards it'll just be absolutely brilliant. The pain fades and the glory lasts forever. When you looked at the other competitors, I mean, who has been an inspiration to you? Aidan Tyres and Ulrich Jessup. Unfortunately, Ulrich's not competing this year, but uh, Aidan is... Both of them are good friends of mine, have been really supportive. They're pilots that I can identify with. I've oh, got some mountaineering background. Uh, Aidan's another IT guy like myself. We, they're good friends. They've, they've been absolutely, um, absolutely brilliant. On the other competitors, it's harder to say. One person I will mention, actually, is Vincent Sprungley, who actually had to withdraw from the 2007 race because he, well, he flew from basically the back of the field in about 26th position up to about 5th position in a 200k flight and then walked through the night which uh, probably damaged his leg and he had to withdraw a couple of days later but this guy is a, is a total legend he's won PLA Door which is the highest prize in mountaineering uh, for I think a cent in uh, Patagonia in the French cross country scene he's a total legend he's pioneered many of the huge XC routes through the, through the French Alps true alpinist and a truly pioneering pilot so he's a real inspiration you've got to do quite a lot of work to kind of fulfill your obligations to the red bull sponsors in terms of what you need to do for the media circus do you does that not interfere with your race or is it just that everybody has to do it so therefore it's equal (laughs) everyone has to do it so therefore it's somewhat equal but it is quite a lot we have to do we have to produce 10 minutes of video footage each day, which doesn't sound like much, but I know it'll take a lot of time. If you want to make that interesting, that's going to be hard. 
the there are really two sides to the the Red Bull X Alps. There's the the race itself, where the competitors walking or flying as hard as they can for uh, for two weeks on end. And then there's the media side of it, with the interviews, the press coverage, the Red Bull website, the, the, the high-quality photographs and so on. And really the two run along side by side. It's very interesting if you look back at the uh, look at the photos from the 2007 event, actually, you'll see a few of the captions. Uh, an athlete winds it up over Chamonix, or athletes fly side by side in, in, the, in the Dolomites. And if you look carefully, you'll see that these athletes are not actually anyone from the event itself or not, not one of the 30 uh, competitors but mm. in fact there are two pilots who follow with red bull branded wings and with photographers and when red bull can't when the weather doesn't allow red bull to get the photos they want during the actual race they will set up this alternative photo shoot to provide the materials for the website and the dvd and so on anyway, so yeah so the um, the media side of it is is very important. We're extremely grateful for Red Bull, Red Bull for sponsoring for making such an event possible. It's a massive investment in the sport that really the sport of paragliding really benefits from. And at the same time, it's the media side to it is is there and related to the race. In terms of the financial sponsorship of the race, it's a huge financial investment for the athletes, though. You know, if you're having to get your vehicle and you have to find sponsorship to get your wing, and it, it must be a big financial investment for you personally to undertake this. Yes, it is, but it's totally worth it. Um, if you do the maths, you well, if you take the quote, the uh, estimates from Cross Country Magazine. They talk about. Seven, eight thousand euros to the race. There's no entry fee, of course, but um, and they even give you some free clothing. But the total costs can be quite high, particularly for pilots coming from the other side of the world who have to consider airfare, who have to hire the minibuses or hire the, the vans rather than buying their own. Yes, it's a lot of money, but it's totally, totally worth it. When we talked earlier about the research that you've had to do mm. and your preparation, presumably that's all part of it, that you've actually had to spend quite a bit of time trying to get sponsorship and, and sponsored equipment and things. Or have you so, just said, no, I'll just pay because that makes it easier? As I've been planning to the Red Bull X Alps for uh, two years now, I'd already started saving for it. I'm, I, I do have a full-time job. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a para bum, so this means I do have a certain amount of money to spend on the race, so I can buy myself the best gear that I want. I don't have money hassles during the race, but this is an active, it was an active decision on my part. Like people save for a big holiday, I save for this as a big holiday. I read on one of the athlete, previous athletes' blog, they hadn't been able to get enough sponsorship and were therefore carrying more kilos than others because they had to fly with a normal harness and I think mm -hmm. that probably takes a lot of the stress out of it if you've put the money aside and said right you know I'm just going to go with the lightest that I and the most comfortable and you know that way you can set up the gear that you want rather than being forced into a situation where you have to carry something that maybe isn't as comfortable or more heavy. Absolutely. And finding sponsorship itself is extremely hard in the current financial climate. It's a lot of work in itself and Honestly, it's simpler and easier to have the choice if you have the money to just buy the stuff yourself. Yeah, it's interesting to see the different budgets that the different athletes could be competing with. I'm probably relatively well funded because of my savings, but I know others are doing it on a real shoestring budget. Do you think it's made a difference in the past in terms of the result, how, uh, you know, the budget that people have had available? I don't know. Not much, I don't think. I mean, I think, think of the... Uh, 
more extreme examples, for example, in 2007, the Russian competitor took his full race cocoon harness with him. Really? I think, yeah, he was... But this was an active choice on on his part. He, there's absolutely no way that he wouldn't have been able to borrow a lightweight harness from a friend if he needed one. So there, I'm sure it did affect his result, but I think it was his own choice to uh, fly with such unsuitable equipment. Perhaps where it has more of effect is it's it's less to worry about. If you if you know you're happy with your gear, you know you've got enough money to buy food and fuel around the race, then then you can focus on doing the race. If money's tight and you're having to balance a budget on the way around, then it's an extra it's an extra amount of stress that might affect your performance. You've been sponsored by Axis and they've provided mm. you a glider, but otherwise what what other sponsors have you got? I have two other sponsors. One is the Grands Espaces uh, shop and school in Annecy. I get on very well with the owner there, Damien, and um, we, they're very kindly providing me very low-priced gear on things like the reserve parachutes, possibly the harness if I choose to buy, buy through them, and uh, generally lots of moral support. And second sponsor is X-Contest, who very kindly sent me their database of 30-plus thousand track logs through the Alps, which has been invaluable in the flight planning but a lot of time investment to look at them all. I'm a computer geek, so I can write computer <laughs> programs to look at them for me. <laughs> Very good. What actually happens at the end of the race? When the first person arrives in Monaco, the others have 48 hours to get to Monaco, and then the race ends. And then basically either half the day or a day and a half after the race ends, everyone gathers together in Monaco for a big party and prize giving and the like. This means, for example, if you're... Uh, if someone finishes on a, in the morning of, say, Tuesday morning, that means the race will run through to Thursday morning, and then on Thursday evening they have the big the big party. The first person gets to Monaco on Tuesday evening, then the race finishes on Thursday evening, and they have the party on Friday night. But all the all the athletes gather in Monaco just after the finish of the race to celebrate and drink lots of Red Bull. <laughs> You'll need it, won't you? Otherwise, it'd be a bit of a sleepover, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I can imagine us being propped up on the, on this magic juice, and then as soon as uh, the party's over, just simply falling over where we stand and falling asleep. And how much time have you taken off work afterwards? I have about four or five days afterwards. We don't know how long the race is going to be. We don't know exactly when it'll finish. Uh, it'll be up to 20 days. Uh, I've taken, in total, a full month off to do the race, which includes a few days before the race to check out the Austrian end of the uh, the start around Austria. Red Bull require us to be in Salzburg uh, three or four days before the start for briefings, uh, interviews, photos, this sort of thing. Then we have two and a half weeks of the race itself and a few days at the end to recover. And you'll need it, presumably, you know. I think so. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I get back from, so I have a month to do the X-Alps. I then have a week back at work, and then I'm down to Saint-Jean-de-Montclair for the British Open in the south of France. It'll be really great to talk to you again after the race and to be able to get your reflections from how it all went in, in retrospect. And it'll be really fascinating to follow your progress on the internet. Thank you very much, Judith. I look forward to it. I think I'll I'll come back with probably a very different view of the race to my, my view now, but interesting to see how it evolves.